Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of From the Hacks Business of Curling series, where we will look at the business side of the sport of curling. We will discuss issues impacting the sport at the club level and share best practices and strategies that have been developed and implemented in areas such as club operations, event management, memberships, ice making, coaching, marketing, and sponsorship. Our first guest will be well known to many in our audience that have been involved in the administration of their home clubs. Daniel Emmerer is a former manager at the Ottawa Curling Club who has spent the last 20 or so years at Curling Canada and is currently the Director of Club Development and Championship Services with the organization. And now, a quick word from our sponsor, and then, Daniel Emmerer. Curler's Corner is located inside the Calgary Curling Club. It is your one-stop curling shop no matter where you are in the world. Celebrating 24 years, Curler's Corner is family-owned and operated and has been providing curlers of all levels from beginners to world champions with the equipment they need to give their best performance on the ice. Whether you're looking for a broom, shoes, a slider, gloves, embroidery, or customized apparel, or simply looking for gifts for your next bond spiel, Curler's Corner has what you need to fill your curling equipment needs. Drop in the Curler's Corner at the Calgary Curling Club. Give them a call at 403-270-0220 or visit www.curlerscorner.com. Curler's Corner, your one-stop curling shop. And Danny, there are many curling clubs around Canada that have struggled for a decade or more due in part to the fact that their business model has not been changed to meet the demands of today's society. Can you speak to that topic and perhaps share how certain clubs have gone about successfully changing their business model? That's been, that's been the biggest issue that the curling clubs have faced since probably the early 90s is when, when the world... The world outside the curling club started to change and, and the world inside the curling club didn't. We have an interesting dynamic in, in the sport of curling in Canada in that, you know, most of our places are volunteers just like every other sport, but our sport not only volunteers to organize leagues and train people how to play, etc., but they're also property managers, right? So they have to they have to look after the building, they have to hire staff where applicable, they have to they have to buy uh, buy food and and food and beverage. They have to pay property tax insurance. They have to do all of that stuff. Where people who run minor hockey or minor baseball or minor football don't have to do any of that stuff. It's all stuff that's done by them by by the communities. So of course, in the curling clubs, there we don't have paid a whole whack of paid people who have been trained to manage a small business and 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 facilities like that so it's all been done by volunteers so progress is generally hit and miss and I say that with all the best intentions I was a curling club manager of a very big curling club for 16 years and I reflect back now on the stuff that I did as manager and I just shake my head that oh my god I was so stupid and the things I could have done then if I would have had the knowledge I have now but curling club operations because again I wasn't trained as a as a manager I was just a guy who loved curling and and wanted to work in the curling business so what happened was up until it looks like up until about the early 1990s and the biggest socio socioeconomic impact that that hurt us was the drinking and driving it became socially unacceptable so our clubs up until then survived on significant alcohol sales um, and the club that I managed did, and just about every club in the country did, for a bunch of reasons. In many communities, it was the only licensed 
bar, especially small communities. It was the only licensed place in town. There wasn't a lot of distractions or competition for the entertainment dollar. We didn't have internet. We didn't have 200 channel televisions. We, we in the wintertime, we went skidooing, ice fishing, or curling. Um, the younger people obviously played hockey, but for anybody over the age of 30, that, that was their, their winter activity. So we survived on not training them to be good curlers, not producing good ice conditions, but we survived on selling beer. So again, the, the world changed. The society changed and a whole bunch of other things changed. So um, the, the internet, um, the television, uh, all kinds of other sports, X Games, all kinds of new things coming to, to, uh, to challenge us for the entertainment dollar. And curling clubs didn't change their business model. It was still the same thing. We still played Tuesday night women's at 6, 6.45 or 7 o'clock. We charged virtually the same rates. We had the same beer and wine in the fridge. The carpet hadn't changed in 20 years, and nothing changed, right, because next year will be better. Next year we'll sell more beer. So our, our business message to clubs that we do on a regular basis, just as I'm doing now, or when we do symposiums, or when they talk to a club one-on-one uh, -on -one that's calling for help, we tell them that you, you got to stop that. We can't, we're never going to sell more beer. Uh, if you think you're going to sell more beer next year with the same members you have here now, you're not. You're probably going to sell less. The only way you're going to sell more beer is by increasing by increasing membership, and that's what we should be working on. So we went from we went from smoky old bars that were disguised as curling clubs to today, where we real curly where real curling clubs, real family based business, our, our sport athletes at the high performance level are some of the fittest athletes of any sport. Uh, we have a brand new look to the game of curling that, that's changed a lot since that time in the 80s. Um, and, and, that, and the really smart clubs have figured it out and have changed their business models to match. So we're, we're focusing, uh, number one is to focus on, on delivering fantastic customer service. And we didn't need that before. All we had to do was make sure the beer was cold. Now we still have to make sure the beer is cold, but we need to make sure we have good wines, and we have to make sure we have good non-alcoholic products. We have to make sure our ices, our curling ice is up to standards. And there was, there was for the longest time, the mentality was, it doesn't matter what the ice is like, because it's the same for both teams. Well, it doesn't have to be bad for both teams. So ice conditions became a priority especially when, when the no-lift delivery came into play, which meant more women and more young kids could play better faster because they didn't have to lift that 40-pound rock. Ice conditions needed to, be, needed to be good. The ice needed to be quick and curly for them to have fun. Again, that's part of the, that's part of the superior customer service uh, option. And then, and then league structures. Like, there's, who says we have to play eight end games? And, and it still drives me bonkers today, and I shouldn't say that, that's a bit overstated, but it still drives me a bit crazy today for any mixed league in Canada to be more than six ends. Mixed curling is, is not about eight ends or of, of curling or two hours of cold. It's about two couples getting together and, and having a nice evening out at the curling rink. And we don't want them on the ice for 120 minutes. We want them on the ice for 85 minutes, and we want them in our our lounges are warm areas for the rest of the time where, where the real social interaction of the sport of curling happens. And I, I read uh, 
the Ottawa Valley Curling Association here have a neat logo on their uh, on their website that they use as their promotion. It says curling the original social media, which is which is so true because that's what we were, right? You come off the ice and you talk to the people you played against and you find out so many things that you have in common or people that you know, uh, both know very well that you might not have known beforehand and it becomes a real community-based thing. But here we are, we're running these mixed leagues and we force them to be on the ice for two hours because curling is supposed to be an 8 end game, which is wrong. Curling clubs can do whatever the heck they want when it comes to, um, to the way the game is played in their buildings. And and in the, the superior customer service and today's attitude from people where they want short, um, delightful experiences, it, that counteracts the, the demand for an 8 end game. So we got guys like uh, Chris McTavish, who I'm hopefully you'll talk to in the future, runs a fantastic curling club in Edmonton called the Shamrock. It was... It was half full and closed for a couple of days a week three or four years ago, and now he's got it at max with waiting lists over the summer. And all of his all of his leagues, except for his competitive leagues where the so-called better curlers want to play, all those other leagues are all six-end curling games because he's selling the full experience. He's not selling two hours of cold. So guys like that get that part, and that's what they want because they're smart enough to see that's what they want in their own lives, not necessarily at the curling club, but maybe at the golf club, maybe at the gym, maybe at the library, wherever it is that they go and spend their entertainment dollars, movie theaters, etc. So they translate those business practices to their clubs. And that's what we try and do. So we're, we're not magicians. We don't come up with these things and say, oh, this is perfect for curling. We find them already in our own business. We find guys like Chris McTavish doing great things. Or we see things happening in other sports, particularly golf, because it, it kind of reflects curling. They're kind of twin twin brothers. And we and we go and show people this stuff. And we test a lot of things. So we see a new idea about about training adult curlers. Instead of doing a one day clinic in September, we'd now do a year long uh, clinic of, you know, ninety minutes every week. And it's worked like it's worked incredible. So we, we tested those things and to make sure that they work, and we write the curriculum and test it again and make sure it works, and then we send it out to our guys, to, to our clubs, to, to do or not to do. And and I'll be honest, the, the pickup rate, even on the greatest programs in the world, which I think Adult Learn to Curl is, is not great. We're probably sitting at maybe 30% um, at best right now of all curling clubs running this program. And, and if you talk to some of the clubs, that actually do run adult learn to curl. It's a game changer for them. It's it's building their their capacity. It's building their leagues. It's creating really really friendly and active curlers and and empowered curlers. And and it's all these new people that are coming to the sport, not not uh, old curlers from the past uh, coming back. So there's there's a whole bunch of stuff like that. The new junior programs. Yeah. I mean junior junior programs now. Can't, it's not a three hour session every Sunday. It's ridiculous. Every other sport is doing 45 to 55 minutes. Why are we Why are we making these kids suffer through three hours of boredom? And and that's what it is. When you get so we we've come up with new stuff where we get a 55 minute course for young kids, and the kids never stop moving. We want them to be. We want them to leave tired, but feeling like they had a really good time. So that whole concept that whole concept has changed, and it all goes back to delivering superior customer service. Our sport is really, really good. The way the game is played, there's nothing wrong with the delivery, the free guard zone, full rock, five rock, it doesn't really matter. 
the delivery of the game, the, the scoring, the, the ice can ice, the way the game is played, it's all really good. It's everything that surrounds it that that needs to be updated and modernized. And and one of the the two prime messages I deliver, and I'll say it, I usually say it more than once in any interview, is that delivering superior customer service and number two, stop trying to sell two hours of cold, because that's not what we're selling. We're selling the the whole experience of the sport of curling which to me is not just the time on the ice, it's the time off the ice, and it's the time at other events that happen in the building over the course of the season. There are clubs around the country that run successful Little Rock programs and junior programs, but lose those young people when they leave town for college. And often those individuals do not rejoin the club if and when they do return to town following their studies. How have clubs gone about addressing this issue? That's a really good question. Um, A, um, what I would do is I would not waste First of all, I would not waste a single dime or, or, or my time on trying to recruit anybody between the ages of 20 and 29. I would totally ignore them. Don't spend any time. If they really want to curl, they'll come and find you. Too many clubs think that that's our sweet spot in terms of building our demographic uh, and building our business. It's not. Our sweet spot is 30 to 45. Those kids generally have, have or those adults generally have kids that are able to take care of themselves, and, and maybe hockey's over, and the kid didn't get drafted, so now they're looking, the kids are doing other things, they're not wasting, they're not taking up all mom and dad's time. They have disposable income, they're usually two-income families, and they're looking to have fun. So that's the, that's the age group that, that we suggest, tar- I mean, if you live in a community like Christopher Lake, um, Saskatchewan, for example, where the average age is 70, you're not gonna go out and try and, and recruit 30 to 45, you're gonna recruit those seniors, with programming that's appropriate. So that's the first thing I would do is target the 30 to 45 year olds and not necessarily people that have curled before, though that is a good start because I think that people who have never curled before, and we've seen this, are more inclined to come and try it for the first time because they're intrigued. I guarantee you they've seen it on TV at one point or other. I think think the numbers show that something like 12 or 14 million Canadians watch at least one minute of curling during a, on TV during the season. So they, they've seen it, and they're intrigued by it. So the key is, obviously, marketing campaigns, whether you do a Facebook, uh, Facebook targeting campaign to get people that are like-minded or whether you use traditional media, um, et cetera. You need to obviously prepare a marketing campaign that's going to their, hit their sweet spot in terms of age demographic, and here's what we're going to give you. Don't sell two hours of cold. Say so we're gonna we have this open house league, whatever you want to call it, Tuesday nights from six thirty to eight. It's instead of instead of two ninety nine a year, three hundred a year. It's like twenty five bucks a month. You know, superior local craft beer. The bar is full of local craft beers. Uh, high screen tele, or big screen, uh, high definition televisions, uh, whatever. So sell the sell the the uh, two hour or the um, not, don't sell the two hours of cold. Sell the opposite. But the thing they need to do is keep their name in the news. And if it means if it means being the host for a concert or a kayak festival, the curl the, the, the name needs to stay in the news on a regular basis so people know we exist. Because you wouldn't believe how many times I've driven to small towns and I've seen a building that looks like a curling club, uh, or even big towns, see a building that looks like a curling club that don't really know because there's no signs. And it's curling clubs all look different, and it's you're really not sure. And most, the most, a lot of curling clubs exist in hiding, not intentionally, just because they're not 
they're volunteers and they don't really know, you know, 100% on how to market themselves properly. So by doing that over time, and you're not going to change the world in, in one marketing strategy. It needs to be, you know, five or ten year effort before you're going to see you're going to see small increases each year, and then and then after five to six years, it should start to grow exponentially if you keep doing it. That's how I would do it. I'd 30 to 45, get the right program for them, find out what it is, build it, let them come and try and throw a curling rock for their first time, and then sign them up for Adult Learn to Curl, and you got them. Many clubs, specifically in urban areas, view first-generation Canadians as a big target market. Can you point to any strategies that have worked in attracting more first-generation Canadians to the sport of curling? And that's obviously a difficult um, uh, thing to crack. Uh, if if you look at if you look at a typical Canadian curling club and you look inside and I, I mean I'm I, I'm not embarrassed to say this it's it I am I am embarrassed to say it but I'm going to say it it's it's very white if you look in the buildings and that's just a product of our of our growth over the years we've never really gone out and and tried to diversify if that's if that's the correct word so a lot of and we don't do things like that right we're we're we don't pick a, um, a market based on on race or anything else. We pick our markets based on age, and we don't care what color, shape, or size that that demographic comes in. That's what we'll accept. So we've never really been specific in doing that, but we need to be because the country is changing quickly, and we're not. So one of the ways that we're we're doing it actually for the club, which I think is the best way, but it's the longest range plan that we have is the Rocks and Rings campaign that we do uh, with Rock Solid Productions. We're going to this year, at the end of this year, we'll be 1.4 million grade six or grade six or less students will have been will have been shown the game of curling in their gym. And if you think of Canadian schools, they are as diverse as our population is. They are the perfect example of what Canada should look like in all of our activities. So slowly but surely, as those young kids, and we started in 2008, I think, 2000, and, no, maybe 2010, Rocks and Rings started. So we've been in, I don't know, 12, 10, how many schools? Just trying to think off the top of my head. Well, it's the same, sometimes it's the same schools every year. So 1.4 million kids, and some of those kids are now 15, 16 years old, and we're seeing them pop into, into junior programs and clubs. We're seeing the, the, the faces changing. So that's one of the ways, which is a long-range um, long range plan. It's a generational change. It takes time for those things to, to come to fruition. But I, I'm fully convinced that um, in 10 or 15 years from now, the sport is going to, when you look inside a curling club, it's going to be quite, quite different. It's going to be quite diverse and inclusive. We're already inclusive and diverse. It just we don't, we don't see enough of it uh, in the buildings. The only other ones that we've seen happen are where there's aggressive membership uh, and business uh, committees and clubs. They might have a business development person on their board or their manager is really proactive in trying to drum up rental business. They'll go and hit the Chinese Community Association, the Philippine Community Association, etc., and bring them in to try curling as a group because those, those communities generally aren't just going to show up one or two people and try something new, they're going to show up as a group and try something with their friends. That has gained some, some traction as some of the clubs do it. I know we did some pilot, um, pilot testing with the Brazilian community associations in Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. 
because they're fairly significant. Brazil is very curling crazy, which is hard to understand because they don't have any ice. Um, but they watch it like crazy and they'll fall in love with the sport. And we had some really good success with, with Brazilians coming out to try curling. Like a couple hundred in Montreal showed up and, and we let them throw rocks for the first time. But they, they weren't gonna they weren't gonna leave their friends and join the club with their wife and play in the mixed league. They're gonna play in leagues with the rest of their with the rest of their community because it's gonna take them six months, a year, two years before they're they're acclimatized to the people in the club and they, and they feel comfortable coming out on on different nights and joining in other people in activities. So again, that's that's a long term project. It's one of those things that if you're going to do it, commit to doing it for a long time. Don't try it once, and when you don't, you don't get anybody to sign up, you, you stop it because that's the worst thing that we do. We have these great ideas that as soon as they don't work, we ditch them. Um, it's worth trying things two, three, four times before deciding it doesn't work, especially if there's other places in the country that are trying these things and it's working for them. So that's, that's how I would, would handle that, and, and, and I'm starting to see the changes slowly, but but surely in the past it seemed like every club in the country hosted a big bond spiel during the season where i'm from in northern ontario the jamaican in north bay and the fishermen's in timmins are just two examples of major bond spiels hosted each season many similar events in canada have seen dwindling entries over the past decade or so what strategies have some clubs used to keep their bond spiels vibrant and thriving despite a lower number of participating teams that's a good question it's one of the topics that we use in, in our symposiums and and, and on the record here, I won the Jamaica Spiel twice. So, <laughs> and it was it was my favorite Bondsville to go to every April uh, up in North Bay. But what the, what happened was it's the same with the with the drinking and driving and the social changes. The world changed around all these Bondsvilles, and the Bondsvilles didn't recognize it and didn't change with them. So, what I mean by that is, in this case, people's time became an issue. Right, so there's there's all kinds of there's all kinds of futurists and specialists that will tell you that today money's not important; it's quality or time that's important to people. Right, so they they're not worried about the price of a glass of wine; they want to make sure it tastes good, and they're not worried about how long the, uh, how much the movie costs or the or the concert cost is how long is it going to take. So those time has become the new currency. So we we stuck with these three and four day bond spiels where you didn't know what your plans were going to be if you were going to win if you're going to win and keep playing till Sunday if you lose your third game and you're out so people's weekends were in, in a bit of chaos and I mean golf is, is is struggling with this a little bit too because it takes a lot of places it takes too long to play 18 holes of golf so the new the new person in Canada the new person to golf in Canada is not playing because it's they don't have the six hours to spend. Same with with and I'm and I'm guessing at my guessing at this. I'm looking at the at the tea leaves and, and and thinking about this. It's just people didn't have the time anymore to commit to three and a half days to go to the north to go to North Bay and have fun. And basically that's all it is because only a few teams ever got prizes. It, it wasn't that. It was people and, and other Montspiels, mixed Montspiels and stuff. They just kept doing the same things over and over again, and people just got tired of it. They just got tired of going to Pembroke every February and playing my three games guaranteed and having the same appetizer on Friday night 
and the same banquet on Saturday night, and the same prize table on Sunday. I'm convinced that if to be successful, the successful spiels I see out there are people that that create the wow factor. So when the bond spiel is over, you go, wow, I wonder what they're going to do next year. That's the that's the feeling they got to create. And we're seeing we're seeing a lot more one day bond spiels or Friday night all day Saturday bond spiels. So people know. I have to show up at 5, I've done at 10 on Saturday night. It seems to be important to people to do that. And there's less, there's less importance being put on prizes um, today, but more that everybody gets, gets an equal experience. So everybody gets you know, the same number of games, everybody gets the same food and beverage, everybody gets the same little gift uh, from the host committee, or everybody has an equal chance at a raffle for some of the prizes. And, and you have different entertainment or, or themes or costumes. Those kind of events uh, still work, but our, but our expectations are we're going to get those 60 teams back when really those 60 teams are probably still out there curling. They just don't want to do that anymore. They just don't want to go to North Bay for, for four days and spend $2,000 as a team, be on hotels entry and et cetera, um, when there's other things that they can do because it takes up three or four of their days. That's what I see. I, there's a lot of successful spiels still out there. I know there's a couple here in Ottawa that sell out like crazy. There's some there's some outdoor events. Uh, the Ironman in in Winnipeg is is a huge event um, now. It draws it draws thousands of people to, to their weekend outdoor bond spiel. So that kind of thing is what what turns people on a really different um, experience that's worth investing their time and uh, and money. And finally, Danny, do you believe that clubs have done a good enough job of changing their marketing strategy to reflect the added emphasis on social media in today's society? That's a really good question. Um, and, 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 you know, if you read the business journals, etc., I mean, I think Facebook has something like 70% of the marketing dollars are spent on their, on their platform now across North America. So it's massive um, social media. Um, the results are there. If they're generating that kind of revenue in terms of sales, it must be working. And we've done some pilots with, uh, with social media to, to great results. And we're actually rolling out in about two weeks a toolkit uh, to show curling clubs how to, how to leverage their Facebook page with some money into some hyper-targeting to get people to, uh, to come to the rink. So we, we, we think we finally we finally built that really nice circle that closes the loop on on how to turn somebody into a long-term member um, without fail. And it's taken us years to figure this out. Um, and the three points are, A, a really good marketing campaign. In, in the old days, it could have been a big sign out in the front yard, and those things still work. Those big signs in the front yard of the curling club, especially if you have busy, heavy traffic, they are terrific uh, to get people to notice. But more specifically in this age and time, and hopefully there's no traditional media guys that will listen to the broadcast, but the way to go is, is to use Facebook and target a, target a whack of people that are like-minded, uh, that will like your sport, and, that's, and get them to the rink. So that's part number one. And part number two to close the loop is you need to have a tri-curling session lined up at your club to balance off the marketing plan. In the past, and I was—I did this for 17 years uh, before I left curling. We would have a one-day 
Learn to Curl session in September for people who wanted to join the club that never curled before. Well, it was an eight-hour session, and I could just imagine what those people felt like the next day. Their arms and back and legs would ache. Um, we just put them through hell, and then we expected them to pay and go and play and have fun. So what we've done is we refined this. After seven or eight years of pilot testing everything, we've refined it. So now the tri-curling, we call it Curling 101, and it's a one-hour session on whatever day you choose where you, in 10 minutes, you show the person how to throw a curling stone, and then for the next 50 minutes, you let them throw as many stones as, as, they, can, as they can throw without getting hurt. You make sure that they're safe. And then when they should be excited at this point, because nobody ever says this is dumber than I thought, they all they all realize, geez, this is harder. It looks so easy on television. So now that now that they've got their interest, you cannot just take their check and put them in the mixed league. That doesn't work. We've we've been so guilty of that over the last hundred years that it's it's crazy in the amount of people that we probably chased away from the sport of curling. What they need to do is now they need to go into an adult learn to curl program with other people with the same non-abilities, because none of them have ever curled before, and learn how to curl on a weekly basis for 90 minutes from trained instructors. And, and we've been doing this now since 2008, and at the end of the year, the people who graduate from this session are way better than probably 50% of the long-term curlers already in the club because they've been trained properly over the course of, of an entire year instead of one eight-hour lesson in, uh, in September. So that closes the loop. So once you get them in the Adult Learn to Curl program and they're, they've made it to Christmas without quitting um, because of they don't like it or their body hurts or they can't deliver stone because of whatever reason, but for those who stay, if you deliver superior customer service on top of this, this circle, you got them forever. They're not going anywhere. They're going to love the curling club, and we've seen we've seen examples of young young adults, meaning the 30 to 45 age group, coming into adult learn to curl, and and by the start of the next season, they're either teaching other people how to curl, they're on the club's board of directors, or they're on committees helping things out at the club. And if you would have told me when I managed a curling club that I'd have a bevy of first year curlers as my volunteer base. I'd laughed. I said, there's no way those people would know what to do or how to do it, but they do. And they love to volunteer. They love to be part of the curling rink because that's, that's how we train them through this program. So after decades of trying, we finally got it. Social media marketing, hyper-target marketing, spend some money on it. You don't, you don't leave this to chance by just posting on your Facebook feed and letting your members send it out to their people. You need to hyper-target with some money to get people to come to Curling 101 where they have a great one-hour experience in a nice, clean club with some friendly instructors, and then you put them into adult learn to curl for a year, and you got them. Without, without a doubt, they're yours forever, unless you screwed up somehow by you know, bad ice or, or whatever the case may be. But if you do everything right in terms of customer service, you've got them forever. That's the ultimate goal. That's superior the customer service is really is really retention, and that's what what um, what this whole program, business of curling, tries to do is is create um, uh, a feeling of uh, not a feeling to create the culture of retention. We're going to do everything we can to retain everything we work so hard to get. And that does it for the first episode of our business of curling series. Our thanks to Danny Lamour for joining us. 
For more From the Hack content, you can follow us on Twitter at From the Hack, like our Facebook page, visit our website at www.fromthehack.com, or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Frank Rock, and this was a Business of Curling. <laughs>